Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Well, good evening. Good to be here, despite the rain and the cold. In our men's group on Tuesday evenings, we've been studying through Paul's epistle to the Romans and called upon to preach tonight. I thought uh, we could maybe do a little bit of review of some of the things we've discussed. We're currently uh, going to be embarking on chapter 3 in our next study. And so I wanted to uh, look at some things in chapter 1 here, particularly verses 16 and 17 will be the focus of our study tonight. And these, in a lot of ways, serve as Paul's thesis statement to what he's about to unfold over the coming chapters. They're certainly popular verses, used quite a bit, and they are about the gospel. So I really want to kind of look through these verses, flesh it out a little bit, and prepare a uh, kind of a gospel Simplified gospel message tonight. So I don't have a lot of notes, so we might be in for a shorter evening. So you might be able to be home in time to catch Survivor. (laughs) All right, so verses 16 and 17 are going to be our focus tonight. And leading up to that, we're going to read the text from verse 1, and then we'll read to 17. So Romans 1 Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that ye may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, once again we come before you as we embark on this wonderful epistle that you have given to us that's filled with rich theology, Lord, and it's our privilege to be able to enjoy it, to look into it, and we ask that as we do that tonight that you would reveal it to us, that we would understand it, and that you would be glorified by it. Lord, I just ask personally, if there's anything I say that's incorrect, that uh, you would not allow it to penetrate the memories and the hearts of those who hear it, Lord. But let your truth just shine forth, if that would be your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul gives us his greeting here, and he's addressing both Jews and Greeks in, uh, in Rome. The church there is comprised of both. And he's mentioned that uh, he's had the desire to come visit them and has not done that as yet. He's been prevented so far from doing so. And we know that Rome is the hub of the Roman Empire. And having such a rich theological epistle as this, one that we treasure, it being sent to a place like Rome, which all roads lead to Rome, and the urban area that it was, certainly it would, in God's sovereignty, he would have been able to use that so that this could go forth and be spread among the people. But of course, I believe in God's sovereignty in all aspects, so he certainly could have done and sent it to a smaller city as well. So as we focus in on the text tonight, we're going to be looking, as I mentioned, at verses 16 and 17. And there's a few different ways that I thought that perhaps I could approach this. And the one that I settled on was, if you notice as we were reading this, and you'll see that verse 16 starts with a four, that that's kind of been Paul's method of laying on one fact followed by another and and expounding on the previous one. And he uses the word for, or the Greek word gar, to expound and and kind of peel back the the onion and lay the the layers onto what he's expressing out. And he's going to do that repeatedly here in chapter 1 and uh, also as uh, he continues on into chapter 2 and the rest of uh, of the epistle. So there's four fours here. And I was going to break it down into those sections. We'll look at each one individually uh, in each of the two verses here. So the first one, verse 16, starts with, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that's coming off of what he's just said in verse 16, where he said that uh, he's eager to preach the gospel to them. And then he transitions from that, for he is not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he's eager to preach it, because he is not ashamed. And when we think of Paul, all of the uh, sufferings that he had, all of the difficulties that he's been through, imprisoned, shipwrecked, stoned, beaten with rods, whipped, hungered, uh, had to flee for his life, lost uh, the status that he had, the wealth, and certainly his reputation. So the gospel came at a great price for him. So certainly by human standards, you would think that that would be something that having lost all this, that he could be ashamed of, but he said he's not. In fact, the gospel has become his whole life. He's lost everything for the sake of the gospel. But despite that, he's eager and unashamed of it to maintain it and to uh, continue in it and to preach it. 
And that is saying very much what uh, Jesus said in Mark 8, when he said, whoever is ashamed of me, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. So he's saying nothing different than what Jesus has. And I think as he is writing to his audience here and speaking to them and, and, and saying that he's desiring to encourage them with the gospel, that he's also desiring that they as well would embody this attitude of being eager for the gospel and unashamed of it. So he is very much trying to uh, encourage them, as he did with Timothy as well in the pastoral epistles where he writes to Timothy, to not be ashamed for the testimony of our Lord, but to share in the suffering uh, with the gospel. So a very consistent message of being unashamed of the gospel. And Gladys and I were talking about this earlier on the drive over here in the culture in which we live, believing the gospel, expressing the gospel comes with some price and it seems to be getting more and more difficult every day and certainly is not nearly as difficult here as it is in many other countries. But certainly if you are proclaiming the gospel publicly, you will be subject to ridicule, mockery, and as we mentioned in other countries, persecution, and that was the, uh, the same as in Paul's day. All right, so we have the, uh, the first four. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He's going to continue to preach it. He's eager to preach it. And why is he not ashamed? And that gets us to the second four that he lists here. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God. For it is the power of God. The gospel is the power. And the Greek word power, dunamis there, which uh, as I was talking to Steve there, was the same word that we get the word for dynamite. So it is a mighty act. It comes with it a sense of uh, authority that has the power to change and to change into individuals as it is the power of God. In order to really understand what that power is, we really need to understand what the gospel is. Obviously, the word gospel is used in many different Christian circles and frequently it's not defined, it's kind of just assumed or it's rather ambiguous, but it's certainly essential that we know what it is if we're going to know what's so good about it, what, are, what is the good news and how is it powerful. And I want to look at a couple different things and I guess I'm, I want to start with using an analogy, although I'm hesitant to do so because I know whenever you use an analogy to try to make a theological point, it falls short in some respect, but I like chocolate. Uh, chocolate is good, right? And, and I, I, I seem to have a problem with eating too much chocolate. But I've noticed when I'm on a diet, and I'm sure you've probably noticed this too, and you're not eating chocolate, you're eating healthily, you're eating your vegetables, cabbage, and like, like Mark's shake that he made the other day with the uh, spinach and kale and, and whatever else is in there. Um, you're eating that healthy, maybe some dry chicken, and then you, you're doing good, and then you take your cheat day, and you're like, I'm going to have my chocolate, I'm going to have some chocolate today, and you go to eat that chocolate, and it just tastes so incredible, it tastes so amazing, it tastes better than it normally does, because you've been used to eating all that bad tasting food that's really good for you, but it tastes bad. And usually when that happens, you can't just have one, you can't, you've got to have more, because it tastes so good compared to what you've been eating. Well, that's a bad analogy, but the point I'm trying to make is the gospel is really good news, particularly in light of when we see the bad news, 
when we see what Paul is really going to lay out here in the rest of chapter 1 here. In fact, as soon as he finishes the two verses that we're going to look at tonight, he then begins to transition in verse 18 and discuss some of that bad news. In fact, he's going to go on for a little while with it. He talks about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he's going to talk about man's ungodliness and unrighteousness and the effect that it has when individuals suppress the truth and then in turn become more depraved and it just leads to uh, more sin and more destruction in their lives. And he gives a whole uh, laundry list there at the end of uh, chapter 1 about how the sinfulness is manifest. His point being that man is unrighteous. And then he transitions into chapter 2 turning his attention there to some degree to the Jews and those who would uh, pertain to be religious, who certainly coming off chapter 1 would think, uh, yeah, those ungodly people, those unrighteous people that you're talking about, go get them. Yes, that makes sense. But then he points to them, those who have the law, and he points out their hypocrisy and how though they claim they have these things, they're being hypocritical in, in their actions. They're still doing the things that their law says that they shouldn't do. And that leads into his full point in chapter 3 where he talks about all are unrighteous. There's none righteous before God. And that's the bad news. That's the really bad news is man's condition. And in, in a very kind of real sense, that is the total depravity that we talk about in the uh, doctrines of grace, the T. And if you are trying to explain that to someone Usually understanding that total depravity is the linchpin or the one that's so important to understand. Because if you don't get that, you don't really have a chance to understand the rest. The uh, limited atonement, unconditional election, uh, irresistible grace, those things. So Paul's kind of using the same method here where he turns the attention directly and starts with the bad news. Man's condition, man's depravity, and therefore the good news that he's going to get into makes a lot more sense of why it is so good. So understanding the reality that is God's wrath, that is to be revealed against all unrighteousness, is important to understand why the gospel is such good news, why it is a good tiding. But not only that, he has also given us a, a little more here that we can look into to understand what the gospel is and why it's so powerful. If we look back up at verse 1, Paul, after saying that he's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, he says, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The gospel that Paul is teaching is, first and foremost, concerning Jesus Christ. It is about his son. And he's going to say the same thing as well in verse 9 when he says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son. Jesus Christ is the central aspect of the gospel. You can't have the gospel without Christ. That's another gospel. It's not even a gospel. And Paul's going to explain that too uh, to the Galatians. So understanding the bad news helps us understand what the gospel is, and then understanding Christ is the second part of it. Now, I do want to 
move ahead here and look at kind of when he fleshes a little more of this out in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, these verses here really lay out what is at the heart of the gospel and why it is so powerful. So let's look at that and get an understanding exactly why this, the gospel is such good news. So in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith that was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a good summary of the gospel right there. He said that redemption is in Christ Jesus. He is the propitiation. He has passed over our sins. He bore our sins. He's the sin bearer, and they are passed over. He is the justifier of the one who has faith. So you can't have the gospel without Christ, without Christ's finished work, without the atonement, without what he has done for us. It is the heart of the gospel. So let's go back to... Uh, our text here in Romans 1, we're going to look at the third four now. First one, he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And what does its power reveal? What does its power do? What is the effect of it? He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or the King James renders that the power of God unto salvation. It leads to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So for, first of all, there's, there's salvation there. That, that's obviously the, the number one thing that we need to take away from there. There's deliverance. The power is to deliver. It is to save. And then to everyone, but he qualifies the everyone with who believes, all the believers. So it's not a everyone universally. It's distinctly qualified by the believers, or I think the word believers there in the Greek is from the same word that we get faith, so it's like faithing, those trusting in God. Yeah, it's faithing there, but we know, for example, in Hebrews 12 too, that even our faith is a gift of God. So he's central in that as well, and Paul also tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. So the power of God leads to salvation to those who believe, to those who trust in, in God. And then he also qualifies it with two groups here, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. So he sets a priority. It's not both are equal, both are saved here, but there is a matter of priority first. It is extended first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And that would make sense uh, with everything else Paul has taught us. Uh, Christ came first to the, Jew, to the Jews. Uh, they 
were the ones that were looking for him, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies. And so that would make sense. The early Christians were Jews. So he came first to the Jews and then also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And Paul tells us the same things in Ephesians, that there is one man, they are one in Christ. So wonderful bit of news there that the uh, power of God leads to salvation to those who believe, to those who are faithing in Christ, the Jew first and then also to the Gentile in that order. And then he's going to, uh, as he leads into verse 17, he's going to give us the fourth four. And this one is, for in it, that is the gospel still, he's still referring to the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So given everything we know about the gospel, there, that, there's a lot in that word it. Christ's completed work, the propitiation, uh, death, burial, and resurrection, all that is the gospel is in that word it. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the righteousness of God and it being revealed, and there's a few different verses that I want to examine here that tell us a little bit more about this imputation of righteousness that is through faith. Um, first, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. So here Paul says, He, that is God, made him... It is Christ, who knew no sin. Christ left his first estate, the glory that he had, came to earth and was sinless, yet he knew no sin and he was made sin on our behalf, to be sin on our behalf. So that's the first imputation, that he bears our sin. And then that happens in order that, the second half here, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's that second imputation. The righteousness of God comes to us through Christ. So we see the double imputation there and how the righteousness of God revealed. It's not a righteousness that comes from within us, something that we manifest or earn, but rather it comes in the trade that uh, we just saw here where Christ takes our sins and in turn imputes righteousness onto us. And I want to look at Philippians chapter 3, another verse that I think uh, is going to expound on this a little bit more. And we'll be looking at verse 9. And we may have to look up at verse 8. Uh, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered and lost, suffered the loss all things, we talked about that earlier, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the same thing that he's talking about here in Romans chapter 1 a righteousness which comes from God through faith. And just to kind of hammer home the point, let's go back to Romans, and I want to look at a verse 
in chapter 10. Chapter 10, and we're going to look at verse 3. And Paul is addressing uh, Jews here in particular. And he says in verse 3 of the Jews, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, that's very pharisaical, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So here they sought to establish their own righteousness. That's not how it works. That's not how righteousness is obtained. But rather, as he says, the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I don't know about you, but the idea of trying to establish, going about to establish my own righteousness doesn't sound very doable. And I don't think I would want to try to attempt that. So I am thankful for God's imputed righteousness. So back to the text. So we know just following our different force here, not a, for he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation uh, to the believing Jew and Greek. Uh, for in it, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed and I believe that revealed is in the perfect tense, so it's, it's manifest, it's, it's made known from faith to faith. And there's lots of debate kind of centered around what that means exactly from faith, by faith. I think there's some translations that uh, render it from first to last. Um, but essentially it's saying all of faith is wrapped up in that, is being revealed through the righteousness of God here. From faith to faith. And then he is going to uh, use an example from the Old Testament. As he says, as it is written. And then he's going to quote uh, Habakkuk here in Habakkuk chapter 2. When he says, and of course this is Martin Luther's passage. Once he studied and, and came to the realization of, brought him such great joy. But the righteous man shall live by faith. And that is a direct quote from Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. And if you remember in Habakkuk, uh, three chapters there, that Habakkuk was complaining to God about the iniquity of his people. Uh, he was witnessing the law was being ignored. Justice was not being done. Um, it was not a, a good time. So he's calling out to the Lord about his justice, about upholding his standard and the Lord of course sends the Chaldeans to punish the Israelites there and then Habakkuk complains about them as well because they're just as bad they're doing just as much iniquity and just as wicked and so God answers what Habakkuk says about uh, about God and his uh, whether he will judge whether his righteousness will be done in chapter 2 God answers back, and this is the portion that Paul picks up on in chapter 1 of Romans. So God answers back to Habakkuk, and he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him. So he's referring to the Chaldeans there. As for they were very puffed up in that God was using them to go in and to capture uh, the Israelites. But as for them... Their soul is not right, and certainly God will judge them. But then he contrasts that, but the righteous will live by his faith. 
The righteous will live by his faith. They will survive. They will live by their faith. And then Paul imports that to make his same point about the gospel in chapter 1 of Romans where he completes his thought there in 17 where he says, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made manifest, made manifest from faith to faith as it is written just in Habakkuk, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So a wonderful two-verse section here about uh, the gospel, what's at the heart of it, not being ashamed, its power, it's the power of God, its centrality in Christ and what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished, and that is the salvation of the believers, both Jew and Greek, and that it reveals the righteousness of God through faith. So I did want to uh, also, because the men here uh, were part of the men's study, I wanted to open it up to, and if you had any thoughts on this passage, chapter 1, anything else that you might want to share uh, from the men's group that we covered that I might not have covered here uh, that might be beneficial, and particularly how it pertains to the gospel. Yes, Tom? The, the text that you gave us tonight and, and, and all the other texts you did are so powerful and so direct and so easy for us to be understanding you can't help but wonder why doesn't everybody get this? Mm -hmm. And that drives home the same point of you can't get it unless God has revealed Reveals it to you. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, you're, you're just you know, a blind man walking into the furniture. Mm -hmm. the, the words are powerful, and it couldn't be any clearer to somebody who is, has been visited by God and has had God reveal himself. Right. The scriptures that you've taken tonight are, are just... As direct as could be. Yeah. Yeah, they can seem very direct, but, you know, unless God gives someone understanding, it'll be, like they said to the Greeks, it's foolishness, you know. So, unless eyes to see have been given, it's not going to make any sense. It won't have any power. And shame on the preacher that won't address these topics. Right. Yeah, that preach, well, some other gospel that's not really a gospel at all. I think it, it, that verse implies that the, the person from whom you receive your faith has to have faith, mm -hmm. the real faith. Mm -hmm. You can never be saved unless... unless Genuine faith, faith, right. You go from a faithful person to a, or it can be imputed to another faithful person. From Christ. Any other thoughts? I did want to... Uh, end with this because I think I just wanted to find some way to fit it in and I figured I'll just uh, I'll just end with this <laughs> and I think it does tie in but I, I found this this hymn I, I haven't I guess I hadn't heard of this hymn it's not in our songbooks and I don't remember singing it growing up at all but I found it this week and I've listened to it about 50 times since Monday the words it's by Thomas Kelly and an Irishman and the words are so, I, I, I'm so jealous of someone being able to put these words together because they're so beautiful and so true. And I want to read it and just want you to ponder over it in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ has done for us, the finished work and the reality of how we talked about God's wrath being revealed. And in turn, Christ took that wrath, took that punishment for us. And I think... Mr. Kelly does a wonderful job here of really describing that and articulating that. And so I want to end with his words here. 
And this hymn, I think this was written in 1804, and the hymn is Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And I want to particularly just read uh, the second and third verse, and I'll end with that. He says, Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, None would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word the Lord's anointed, Son of man and son of God. I can't put it any better than that. I think that is an amazing hymn by Thomas Kelly. So that's all I have tonight. I guess I'll end in a word of prayer, and then you can leave any announcements you'd like. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word. We thank you for your servant, Paul, who you used to pen these, this, this rich theology in the book of Romans that we have. We're so thankful for it. And we just ask that you would continue to reveal yourself in your word to us. And we long to know more, Lord. We are so privileged to have and to hold your word. Help us to cherish it properly. Help us to long more, long for it more, and long to understand your truth. Lord, we look forward to the day of the return of our Savior. As we live in a world that seems to be growing ever darker, we long to see our Savior face to face. So even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we just pray that what we do and say would bring glory to your name. Amen. Amen. Everybody say goodnight to the internet. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.